last Wednesday night because uh, as we came to the close of chapter 5 of Amos, I intended to uh, pose some questions that I thought would be worthwhile. But that ship has sailed, and so I'm not going to go back and try to uh, talk about the things we talked about in chapter 5 and ask the questions. You'll just have to wonder what I was going to ask. Now we come to chapter 6 of Amos. And in these 14 verses, we're going to read about a harvest. It's not a harvest of crops. What has been sown by the Israelites is pride and self-indulgence. And what will be harvested will be suffering and captivity. Within these verses in chapter 6, is a reality and a reminder. The, the reality is that man seeks happiness. We know that's true. But often he seeks it in the wrong way. And with the belief that happiness will be achieved through prosperity and personal satisfaction, no matter how that prosperity is gained, and no matter how the satisfaction aligns with what God wants. The reminder is that that prosperity and that self-satisfaction wrongly gained and without consideration of God's will can only result in one thing, and that is condemnation, not commendation from God. Israel had to learn that bitter lesson. Now verses 1 through 7 of Amos 6 will show us the pitfalls of pride and self-indulgence. And in these beginning verses particularly, two woes, W-O-E-S, are pronounced. Woe is an expression of grief. We saw it back in chapter 5, verse 18. We will see it again in chapter 6, verse 1 and verse 3. Some translations use the word alas. The New King James uses the word woe. We want to be sure that, that we note in verse 1 that Grief is for those who are at ease in Zion and those who trust in Mount Samaria. Look at it. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. Zion, you and I know, is typically a reference to Jerusalem. And though Amos is addressing Israel, he mentions Zion. Now, he has already shown in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the guilt of Judah. Judah, like Israel, is guilty. Their punishment will not come as quickly as that of Israel, but they're guilty. We wonder 
And, and unless you want to assume, and you can, but I don't know why you would, unless you want to assume that Zion is used in a way not normally used, and that Zion refers to Israel rather than Jerusalem, then I think you'll come to the conclusion that Amos still recognizes that these are all God's people. And that what is wrong with one group is wrong with the other group. Amos has no desire uh, to make uh, Judah uh, free from responsibility. Uh, nor does he want to say they are doing right and Israel is doing wrong. He, he must recognize that they are both wrong. I think we talked a little bit earlier about the fact that there is the possibility that in the mind of Amos, through the communication of God, is the reality that though they are separated, they're still God's people. They're still from the same roots. Now, when Amos makes this statement, notable persons in the chief nation, I think you can assume that he's saying that sarcastically. They are, in their minds, notable people in the chief, the primary, the only nation. There is certainly a mistaken sense of security. They have been living an easy life. And, and notice, if you will, at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. There is confidence among the Israelites in a place rather than in God. Now, when you get to verse 2, there is some disagreement about what verse 2 means. It sort of comes in at us without us being prepared for it. It says, go over to Calne and see, and from there go to Hamath, the great then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? There is disagreement, I think, among interpreters as to what is the purpose of saying this. And I'm not going to talk about all of the possibilities. I'm just going to give you one possibility. You can take it or you can think of something else. And that is this. Israel recognized they had been blessed in a special way. These places that are mentioned, Calna and Hamath and Gath of Philistine, they hadn't been blessed the way Israel had been blessed. But the question is, is Israel better than them? They thought so, but they weren't. Uh, the sins of those places, we've already seen Although the first two places are not mentioned specifically, we know about what was said about the Philistines and about Gath. We have already read that. They're going to be punished. But so is Israel. Israel's no better. And they can't pretend they are. In verse 3, we see that danger signs are being ignored. Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who caused the seat of violence to come near. The Jews were trying to be 
oblivious to any kind of calamity coming on them. And the day of judgment would come whether they thought about it or not. Someone has uh, recognized kind of an interesting play here. They put off the day of doom, and because of that, they caused the seat of violence to come near. In other words, you can put off your thinking about it, but that's not going to stop what's going to happen soon. Here is, incidentally, a real temptation on the part of people throughout history. And that is, those who do not see any possibility in any way of punishment, even as they continue in sins, are going to feel free to be greater sinners. You think about that in regard to Israel. They don't see any approaching calamity coming on them. So what are they doing? They're living worse lives. There's no fear in them. There's no feeling that they've got to change their attitude because they don't see any calamity coming. Their idleness and their indulgence are highlighted in verses 4 through 6. He says, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. The, the, the idea of, and, and we have to sort of get rid of a modern mentality and try to develop an ancient mentality for thinking about these things. To be stretched out to eat, to lay on couches as eating would be likely an, a, a, an idea of a banquet. You're, you're not uh, sitting at, at, at a meal, you're, you're stretched out, you're taking it easy. And, and you will note that in this idleness of them, they're laying on beds of ivory, because they're wealthy. They eat lambs and calves, the tenderest of meat, Doug, right? Calf, lamb, rather than the older animals. But, but think about this. They're indulging in the best of what they can eat. The typical Jew didn't eat a lot of meat. He couldn't, couldn't afford it, couldn't buy it to eat. But these wealthy, extravagant Jews were, in fact, doing just that. Amos says not only do they banquet themselves, but they sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David. The singing itself is not wrong. Some singing is, but singing itself, per se, is not wrong. The context shows this was wrong. And, and I think we need to pause here for just a moment as we consider this for part of verse 5. 
And it's that little segment that says, invent for yourselves instruments of music like David. It is unfortunate <laughs> that in their goal to show that instrumental music is not to be a part of worship under the new covenant, some have tried to make this verse proof for that idea. I can think of a well-known commentator in our brotherhood who for some reason determined that he must denounce instrumental music as always being wrong. They have implied directly or indirectly that David who invented instruments had to be doing wrong. The only problem with that, well, not the only problem, but one of the problems is God doesn't condemn David for inventing instruments. In fact, those who criticize that idea and who say instruments of music were always wrong in worship have forgotten this passage. I want you to turn with me. Keep your place in Amos. But please turn to 2 Chronicles 29, 2 Chronicles 29, and first of all, look at verse 5 with me. This is talking about David. He stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, but notice, of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet, for thus was the commandment, what? Of the Lord by his prophets. And then you go down to verse 28 and you read, so all the assembly worshiped. The singers sang, the trumpets, trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshiped. Now, here's what we need to understand. There are plenty of valid reasons for not using instrumental music in worship under the new covenant. We don't need to make something up to try to strengthen an argument that's already strong enough. Remember also, if you will, that the context of Amos 6 verse 5 is not worship. These are people who are involved in decadent indulgence with, and, he says, with unconcern for wrongs in Israel. Verse 6, who drink wine from bowls, anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Incidentally, there are a number of times when a, a person is substituted for a group. You're going to see, again, the word Joseph a little bit later and Jacob. Uh, there are times in the Old Testament where uh, Israel is referred to by Ephraim. Ephraim, of course, was just one of the sons of Joseph, but all of the nation is referred to as Ephraim. And so Joseph stands for Israel. And God had something in store for the idle rich. Verse 7. Therefore they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. 
Now, again, don't press this beyond what it says. These are people who are self-indulgent, who are idle, who are not doing God's will, who have no concern for others. Doesn't mean that any banquet is wrong or any time of celebration. When you get to Amos 6 verse 8 and through verse 14, you will see the punishment again that is to come upon the nation. And it begins with the strongest of terms because Amos says the Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces, therefore I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. God swears by himself. There is no one by whom he could swear greater than himself. And so this affirms again, as we've seen before, the absolute certainty this will happen because God has sworn by himself that it will happen. We've seen this before. Chapter 4, verse 2. God swears by his holiness. We'll see it again in chapter 8, verse 7. Now, does anyone need proof that God will indeed punish? Here it is. Here it is. One wonders now, why such strong language? I, I hate, God says, I hate this. I hate what is happening. I hate what you're doing. Why? Because God has strong feelings about right and wrong. God, who is holy, cannot be indifferent to unholy behavior. God, who is merciful, cannot be tolerant of those who are unmerciful. God abhorred, abhorred the pride of Jacob or Israel, as well as the objects of their pride, their palaces. I think um, we, we all must be careful in our desire to picture a loving God. And certainly that is a true picture. Our God is a loving God. But we must be careful not to neglect the fact that our God also hates things. Let me give you just a couple of passages. You don't have to look these up. I'll give you one in a moment. Psalm 5, verse 5, the psalmist writing of God says, You hate all workers of iniquity. Isaiah 61, verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offerings. Jeremiah 44, verse 4, Zechariah, one of the minor prophets, chapter 8, verse 17, says this, Let none of you think evil in your heart, against your neighbor and do not love a false oath for all these things all these are things that I hate says the Lord yeah our loving God can hate in chapter 2 and 6 or chapter 2 and 2 verse 6 and 15 in the book of Revelation we are told that God hated the deeds and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He hated what they did, what they taught. 
And God would deliver up or hand over everything in the city of Samaria. When we read that, when it says, therefore I will deliver up the city and all that is in it, it might be worth questioning whether we're talking about delivering up to an enemy or delivering up perhaps to something else like pestilence. I think personally that it could be either or both. We know that Israel, that Israel would be invaded by Syria. We know that. And they will take away captives. But often during a siege or a famine, uh, during a siege, a, a famine or plague would occur within a city. You know, if a city is, a walled city is being attacked, and people are, are trapped in it over a period of time, eventually they're going to run out of food. They're going to run out of water. And when that happens, and when the sanitation of that city becomes bad, disease likely will happen also. You know, 2 Kings 17 verse 5 says that the king of Assyria besieged Samaria for three years. Three years. I don't know how long in the besieging that was that they could not leave the city, but it really wouldn't take months for it to become a real problem. Verses 9 and 10 will then describe what it will be like when that happens. Then it shall come to pass that if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when a relative of the dead with one who will burn the bodies picks up the bodies to take them out of the house, he will say to one inside of the house, are there any more of you? Then someone will say, none. And he will say, hold your tongue, for we dare not mention the name of the Lord. What a terrible scene that is. Ten men in one house, perhaps thinking they're escaping or hiding or hopeful that they can survive. They all die. And incidentally, and I don't know if you have a different version or translation that I'm using, there are some translation problems here, and not every version says the same thing. Uh, but, but I'm not going to go into that particular argument. But think about this. Here they are in the city, and there is multiple deaths. What do you do? Can't take them out and bury them somewhere, so you burn the bodies. Cremation was not common among Jews. But if death was by disease, or if there were so many bodies that had to be buried that they couldn't be buried, even if there were a place to bury them, what else could be done but to burn the bodies? That would intensify the grief of the survivors. You know, Cremation today is fairly common, and it's by the request of a family member, maybe a child or whoever is in charge. It's not a shame, but imagine if someone took 
someone in your family who had died and cremated them, and that really wasn't what you wanted or they wanted, would it not create some grief? And they say, here is one who says, don't mention God's name. Why is that? Well, Jews had developed over a period of time a fear of saying God's name. I'm talking about the uh, special name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh, as, as the Hebrews would say it. it it's that four-letter name that is unpronounceable because it's all consonants until you put vowels with it. And that name of God was so significant to the Jews that they developed a phobia about it. And so they would say Adonai, Lord, instead of Jehovah. Uh, in fact, uh, it's interesting that copyists of manuscripts, when they came to the name of God, they would stop and go wash their hands and come back and continue writing because of their fear of offending God as they wrote his name. Well, in this case, don't mention the name of God. Why? Because to speak it might bring more pestilence. It might bring more grief if you even say God's name. Verse 11 completes what was begun in verse 8. And verse 11 says, For behold, the Lord gives a command. He will break the great house into bits and the little house into pieces. Those great houses that the Jews were so proud of because of their prosperity would be no more. But neither would the small houses. So it didn't make any difference whether you were rich and living in luxury or you were poor you would still be a victim of what would happen. And this would be more evidence of utter ruin. You know, I'm gonna just mention this, and I'm gonna to try to say it as carefully as I can, not to mislead anybody. Someone might think, because people are always determining what God really could or should or ought to do, someone might think, well, you know, you, you've got these leaders of Israel and their wives who are so terrible. Why couldn't God just punish them? Why, why would all of the people of Samaria have to suffer? Why would all of Israel have to suffer and many go into captivity? Because when you're a part of a community that has to suffer, everybody's going to suffer. Have you noticed that COVID doesn't just affect bad people? Do you notice that when there's a terrible calamity like a storm, it's not just the bad people who get killed. You're part of a community. And, and to, to be a part of Israel would be to suffer what Israel would suffer. I would add one other thing. It, in some ways, it would be the fault of those who fell into believing that their leaders could do anything they wanted to do. Where, where were the examples of rebellion 
against these self-indulgent leaders and their wives, who, who was standing up besides a prophet sent by God from a different place, who was condemning these people. The remainder of the verses of chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, further emphasize the fall of Israel. And, and, and they are interesting and, and different. <laughs> he says in verse 12, do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice over Lodibar who say, have we not taken car name for ourselves by our own strength? But behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arabah. Many number of names we don't, aren't familiar with. But, but notice this. We can understand this. Amos asked two questions. They are intentionally ridiculous. One person said they're preposterous, but they're intended to be that. No one would expect horses to run on rocks. If an area was really craggy and rocky, you wouldn't expect horses to be normally running on those things, nor would farmers try to plow on rocks. But it was just as absurd for Israel to think that what they had done in regard to justice and, and unrighteousness would not be punished. Rather than doing right, they had turned justice to gall. The, the original uh, meaning of gall is a bitter plant that some forms of were poisonous. Now, uh, he also says, and righteousness to the bitterness of wormwood. We've talked about wormwood in the past. Gall in the New Testament, I believe, can be understood to be slightly different. Uh, when Jesus was offered that sour wine, it was considered to be like gall, but, but it's interesting that it wasn't poison. It was not poisonous. But this is poisonous gall, and the wormwood would be, in many cases, bitter. What, what, what Israel was doing was no less preposterous than the questions that Amos asked. What, what you've done is as silly as thinking horses run on rocks or farmers plow on rocks. And then when you get to verse 13 and you have some of those names that we're not familiar with, the Israelites seem to be rejoicing over some of their recent victories in battle. And, and the two places that are mentioned initially are east of the Jordan River in the land of the Syrians. And their pride told them, we did that by our own strength. We, we took that territory. And, and by doing that, they eliminated any need for God's help. We didn't need God's help. Our army was good enough to take those territories. We recall what 
Proverbs 16, verse 18 teaches, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Because Israel was full of the first, pride, the second could not be far away. When one is full of pride, there will be consequences for that pride, and God would cause it. Again, verse 14, Behold, I will, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel. The, the nation is not named here. We know in hindsight that it was Assyria. But what is known, even at the stating of this, is that God would choose that nation. And again, we remind ourselves, God can use whomever he chooses to carry out his will. 135 or so years later, after the northern kingdom went into Assyrian captivity, Nebuchadnezzar, himself an evil person, would bring his army and crush Jerusalem and Judah. But Nebuchadnezzar would get his own. God would use a wicked person to punish Judah, but then God would punish the wicked person. The same was true of Assyria. The Assyrians didn't get away with anything. They would be punished. You know, I think it'd be very easy for modern readers to miss the significance of the geographic references in this verse. And, and what I mean by that is, he says, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arabah. Why is that significant? Well, if you look at 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 14, I want you to notice, if you will, 2 Kings 14, verse 25. This is talking about Jeroboam, okay? Look, verse 25. He, note, he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the sea of the, of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his prophet Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Heper. Do you understand what's being said? Israel took this property, God is going to take it away from them. You're going to be afflicted in all of the territory that you took away from others. What, would be gained, what had been gained would be lost. Now, that's chapter 6. And what Amos will now present, and we're just about out of time, but what Amos will now present in chapter 7 and 8 will be different in the way that it's presented. The message is not really going to change, but the way the message is delivered will be changed. We're going to see that shortly. But before leaving these six chapters, I am going to get this in. Amos has shown Israel her sins. They were extensive. Think of them. Mistreatment of the poor. Perversion of judgment. Uh, 
false worship, self-indulgence, pride, so much had gone wrong in Israel. It's just like there's been a, a widespread falling apart of righteousness. And without repentance, there could only be one possible conclusion, and that is God would punish them. But I think also in chapter 6, I think we have to think about the danger of pride. You see, pride is an assertion of self-sufficiency. When one is proud, he is saying, I am self-sufficient. And he cannot walk humbly with God. He cannot uh, uh, admit his dependence on God while he is filled with pride. Pride causes a haughtiness to others. Think Pharisees, okay? When you're proud of who you are and what you are, you tend to look down on what others aren't. Remember that Pharisee and publican praying together? Oh God, I thank you. I'm not like this man. His pride did not benefit him any. But let's be careful to recognize the modern danger of pride. Not only in individuals, but in a nation. I, do, do we think that the achievements made in America in medicine, science, technology have brought glory to God? They should have, but sometimes people want to bring glory to man. Look what we have done. Unless God has changed, and he hasn't, the kind of pride that's condemned in the book of Amos is just as offensive to God today as it was in his day. You and I must walk humbly with our God. We don't lift ourselves up. We are sinners saved by grace, and we should be happy that God has mercy on us rather than us being self-sufficient. Let's pray together and then I'll let you go. We'll begin in chapter eight and chapter seven next week. Father, thank you for the blessings that are so abundant in our lives. We know that there is a danger in not seeing those blessings and giving you the credit for them. Help us to keep our eyes open and recognize your goodness and to be thankful for it in such a way that we walk humbly with you. Thank you for loving us and giving us blessings daily. And we pray for others who don't receive the same blessings that we do. Help us not to ever think that the blessings that we have are because of what we are, but because of who you are. We pray all this through Jesus. Amen. Thanks for being here tonight.